HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Today on A Taste of the Past, we'll look at the history of America through 10 restaurants. Stay tuned. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And indeed, today we're going to be looking at American history, but in a different way than what we usually look at it, and that's through the lens of restaurants. Uh, Certainly, we look at it through the lens of food quite often, especially on this show, but uh, my guest has written a book that has cho- that he where he has chosen ten specific restaurants, and through that we can chart the course of political and social changes. And it's interesting t- for me to note that the first restaurant we think of restaurants having been around forever, right? Because we're so obsessed with restaurants these days. But it really wasn't until quite recent. If I say quite recently, uh, eighteen. 31 or so, when the first actual restaurant being defined as a fine dining establishment, not your tavern or your lunch counter, boarding house, um, dining room, but a restaurant. And that was Delmonico's. That was the, the year that Delmonico's opened. And that's where my guest kicks off his exploration. My guest is Paul Friedman. Paul is a social historian and professor of medieval history at Yale University. And his previous book, not un- unusual that he is delving into food with this new book, but his um, previous book was Out of the East, Spices and Medieval Imagination. And he was an editor of The History of Food. And... His new book is called Ten Restaurants That Changed America. 
He is a champion of the Sustainable Food Program at Yale University, where he teaches, and he um, teaches the history of food as well, and um, and encourages their sustainable food program that they have there. Welcome, Paul. Thanks. Thank you, Linda. I'm glad to be here. Um, it's <laughs> reading this book. It wasn't just ten restaurants that you chose, but you had. I would imagine quite a list. I don't even know how you formed your list. But someone said you spent the better part of the last decade eating at the restaurants. What, did your research really involve that much eating? Not really. I think some of the restaurants were obvious. Everybody in the food world, when they hear the project, would say, oh, well, Chez Panisa's got to be in there. Or actually, on the other end, Delmonico's is pretty obvious. Yeah. If you're talking about influence... Howard Johnson's, which is not one of the certainly top restaurants from a gourmet point of view, but certainly it obviously influenced the way roadside dining is organized, franchising, restaurant chains, and a kind of standardized American cuisine that reached its peak in the 20th century. So some of them were obvious. Others were the best in their category. Well, um, and it's interesting because I do had I, I have some questions about the choices, and your choices are quite obvious. And yet, yes, there are some that might have been in that cat that some of those categories, like fine dining, fine French cuisine, uh, ethnic cuisine. Let's let, let's start off by going down the list and and telling our listeners we want them we're not going to tell them everything in the book but we we will name the ten restaurants for them we want absolutely them, we want them to buy the book so indeed you start out with Delmonico's and then and we can talk we'll talk about the specifics of each one after we just name them okay so Antoine's this is more or less chronological order okay. Antoine's in New Orleans established in 1840 and still going strong. Schraft's, a small chain of middle-class restaurants that featured ice cream and fairly light food uh, in the Northeast. Howard Johnson, as I mentioned. Mama Leone's, an Italian restaurant. The Mandarin in San Francisco, representing Chinese food. Sylvia's in New York and Harlem, which represents African-American food, Southern cuisine. Le Pavillon, which was an elegant French restaurant mm -hmm. in New York, Four Seasons, just closed, a high-end restaurant in New York that, unusually for its time, wasn't French, and then Chez Panisse. Right. Uh, these are all estimable restaurants, each in their own right, um, and cover... Uh, a lot of area that is not just fine dining, which we will discuss. Um, but how now? How did you make those choices? Let's say specifically, um, uh, well, Mama Leone's because it was it was so early. Right? Yeah, I but, got a little pushback from Mama Leone's because many people in New York remember it as a rather hokey restaurant, big on spectacle, huge on portions. And probably not the best representative of high-quality Italian food. But again, the point of the book is influence and exemplification. And Mama Leone's really exemplified a kind of Italian food style. 
that appealed to Americans all over the country. Well, and they have to remember, Mama Leone's opened in what, 19, early 1900s. 1906, right? and it began as a kind of bohemian, small, uh, check tablecloth and Chianti bottle candle type of place. So it is also a well-documented restaurant. And in many of these cases, I had to choose a restaurant that we know something about. Mm -hmm. Obviously, restaurants don't think of themselves as historical monuments and often don't keep their material, their menus, their records, uh, biographies of the people who ran them. So, for example, in New Orleans, some people think, well, why didn't you choose Galatoire's? Uh, Galatoire's is more really typically New Orleanian. Uh, not only is Antoine's older, it's a good mm -hmm. 60 years older than Galatoire's, but Antoine's has much more documentation. So as any historian is to some extent influenced by the documentation that survives, that explains a lot of my choice of which restaurants to mm -hmm. choose within my choice of restaurants within categories Cat like, well, say, Chinese. And, ca right. or, and categories also, um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, uh, sociological shifts that were going on. Um, you know, first of all, setting the stage in, in when Delmonico's opened, I mean, who could afford to go out to dinner? Who was, you know, well, even still, <laughs> we're back there again. But, you know, the, we're talking about fine dining that was really for the elite, for the upper class. Yes, but as is the case today, there are restaurants that people can afford on a fairly normal basis, say middle-class people. They're restaurants that are for an occasion. Mm -hmm. That is, people can afford them, but not routinely. Right. So they'll have their anniversary at Le Bernardin, but they're not going to go there once a week. Right. So uh, this is similar in the 19th century. Delmonico's was fancy. It probably, in its way, was intimidating. But if you had enough money and were well enough dressed, uh, you could go there, provided you were a man or a woman being escorted by a man <laughs> right. under most circumstances. Uh, it's not a particularly open or democratic phenomenon of America. And then as now, people sometimes criticized the habits and the extravagance of the upper classes. But this was usually for celebrations. Delmonico's had some over-the-top celebrations uh, involving artificial gardens or people on horseback or all sorts of vulgar spectacles. And those came in for criticism. But regular old fancy dining is not really unaffordable to everybody except a tiny elite. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the restaurant played a real role in the community, not just that of a kind of upper-class parasite. Well, it was 1831 when it opened, and it was, um, as majority of these restaurants on the list are, in New York City. And it was in the, what we call old New York, downtown, right? So it, as, as our listeners figure out, well, no, there wasn't, you know, now there are restaurants, you know, up and down the um, the avenues and here we are in Bushwick and Oregon. here we are in Bushwick Brooklyn at in another at another category of restaurant we'll talk about too um, that uh, you know New York stopped at like 14th Street I mean that so that was you know it was it was really downtown that things were happening it made sense that it opened down where it did and uh, that's right and they and kept French it. and it was French yeah. and they kept it for a long time but Delmonico's was unusual in that they also moved uptown 
when the entertainment districts, the theater districts, moved. So they opened up a branch on 14th Street when that became fashionable during the Civil War, in fact. Mm -hmm. And then Madison Square was the theater district. And finally, Times Square. At times, they had three restaurants open or uh, they would close one and then open another one up further downtown. So they were pretty adaptable. Now, I just mentioned Delmonico's, of course, was French. And then we move on to Antoine's, and Antoine's in New Orleans, opening around the same time, not not that long after, right? 1840. 1840. Um, but it showcased regional food, the food of New Orleans. Um, Creole. Heavy on, I would say heavy on the French influence, but yes, Creole. Uh, so talk about Antoine's a bit. Well, as with Delmonico's, in a way, its menu was more French than its food. In other words... It claimed to be a French restaurant. It was created by a chef who had gotten his training in France, Antoine Alcatore. But it took advantage, as did Delmonico's, of the wealth of American ingredients, regional ingredients. In the case of Delmonico's, things like terrapin or canvasback duck. These are Mm mid-Atlantic East Coast specialties. In the case of Delmonico's, the incredible wealth of the Gulf of Mexico and of the um, uh, habitat of Louisiana. So um, it's French, but they have different kinds of ingredients, different kinds of sausages, uh, crayfish, as well as shrimp, redfish and pompano, rather than the Mediterranean kinds of fish. Uh, that would be in a French bouillabaisse. So they have a bouillabaisse, but it's a New Orleans bouillabaisse. I I was actually there a year ago, and it still has on the menu, it looks very French, but then the dishes come out, and and they are... They're, they're New Orleans, and they're yeah. new. In fact, they've gotten to be newer New Orleans than they were years ago. But they're still it's... fairly 19th century, yeah. and they still have a lot of very rich sauces. Uh, they have dishes that are flambéed, uh, dishes that are uh, uh, served with several different sauces, like the, the oyster, baked oyster medleys with three different mm-hmm. sauces. And like Galatoire's, they have very attentive service. Very, very attentive, yeah. an amazing place. Now oh, that's old school. Definitely. <laughs> Can't get older. Right. Uh, then we move on to one of my favorites, Schraff's. And um, I did a, a show with Cindy Lobel. You may know her. We did talked about women in dining and restaurants and how that was not possible uh, until quite late. And Schraff's afforded women the dainty, the, the dainties and the uh, right ice That's creams right. and lighter right. dishes. Well, they use the word dainty a lot to attract women. It's not that women couldn't go to restaurants observers of Delmonico's from its first years talk about the the jewels and the smiles of the beautiful women. But the beautiful women were always accompanied right, by men. Right. So what Schrafts offered, beginning with the turn of the 20th century, was a place where women could go alone if they were, for example, retail shop clerks or office workers or they could go with friends again, workers, but also ladies shopping. Right. Well, and this is this is again, you know, that sociological view of what does a restaurant, what purpose does a restaurant serve? And of course, originally a dining hall or a tavern or, or whatever lunchroom, 
I mean, people who were far too far from home to go home for lunch, too far from exactly. maybe traveling for work. Now we have women entering the workforce, and they had to go someplace for lunch as well, or just shopping. <laughs> uh, that's right. So there are really two categories of women who are too far from home to return for lunch. Uh, a somewhat more affluent group who are shopping and a working woman, usually working in clerical or retail jobs. The former, the shoppers, might spend more and might want a fancier restaurant. From the restaurateur's point of view, the great advantage of the working women is that they're likely to want to have lunch every day. And if Mm -hmm. you make it worth their while, they'll have lunch out rather than bring their lunch. So these restaurants identified women not escorted by men as an unexploited opportunity. They offered them a certain kind of atmosphere. And the most important aspect of that was not so much decor as not having alcohol. Mm-hmm. because that meant that the atmosphere wouldn't get rowdy or unpleasant for women, yeah. and um, uh, they would be spared the coarse behavior of men under the influence of alcohol. There was also something else, I think, um, and if you look, you include wonderful photographs, um, archival photographs and, and paintings in the book, um, but their main branch, Schraff's main branch um, in New York City, had this wonderfully long counter, can't say bar because it wasn't alcohol, but a long dining counter. And that kind of meant you could get in and out very quickly, too. If you had to. Or you could sit down and be served by a waitress who wore a kind of English domestic servant's uniform, female, in order for the female customers to feel comfortable, uh, and often Irish. The food was dainty, but... In a way, the assumption was and has remained for a long time that what women really like in the way of food is light food that will uh, help them uh, lose weight or watch their weight, followed by some kind of indulgent sweet <laughs> dessert. So yeah. my grandmother took me to Schraft's and she would order what was considered light at the time, say cottage cheese and tomatoes or cottage cheese and fruit. but cottage cheese for sure, and then follow it up with something on the order of a butterscotch sundae. Yeah, right. Finish it up with the heavy, right. It's interesting because it, it spawned um, a lot of similar restaurants at that time across the country. Again, and, the influence is what counts. Yeah, me. yeah, absolutely. And that's, 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 it really holds its place in that position. I know growing up in a small town, there were a lot of different restaurants, but there were two specific restaurants of this genre for that my mother took me to yes again for the you know cream chicken on toast and and you know a, and a butterscotch sundae exactly I mean, and and these would be considered when you were growing up still food that women prefer right right well then we move on to How, Howard Johnson's which I think <clears throat> probably throws some people saying well why not you know uh, uh, one of the other big chains like why McDonald's. not McDonald's right. But Howard Johnson's or Hojo's, as we know it, that it, I, I applaud your inclusion of that one. I think that was very important. Well, thank you, Linda. A lot of people have said, I guess I've had more reaction to Howard Johnson than anything else. And it's sort of nostalgia, not necessarily entirely nostalgia for the food, although the fried clams and the ice cream 
come in for uh, a lot of affectionate memories, but just of the experience of being a kid and stopping at Howard Johnson, a restaurant that was very good at appealing to kids. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to appeal to women who are uh, in groups of adult women, but to appeal to families driving and yet not to... Uh, then discourage anybody who's coming there without children is not easy to do. And Howard Johnson succeeded at that. So uh, on the other hand, people say, well, how can you how can you have this without McDonald's? How can you have 10 restaurants without McDonald's? Not only maybe pedantically uh, could I say that McDonald's is not really a restaurant because it doesn't have a real menu. It doesn't have a whole wide variety of choices. It made its reputation on one thing the hamburger at a stand-up window <laughs> and 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 right you and now more customers drive through than even go into the restaurant or right. the establishment itself the main reason though is that you can't have fast food of the modern sort exemplified by mcdonald's or burger king without having had howard johnson's as its predecessor for reasons that i mentioned before as a chain that perfected the roadside Restaurant, the restaurant designed for motorists, and the recognizability that that's something that became the, so endemic. exactly yeah. that you can see while driving a car at fifty or sixty miles an hour in the distance and have time to make the decision to stop and to pull over. So it has to have a very recognizable graphic, and then you also have a kind of standardization that that you know what the experience is going to be and that's certainly true of mcdonald's but pioneered by howard johnson's you knew what was going to be on the menu the menu was larger it would be served by waitresses but nevertheless it would be the same coast to coast and just an aside the esteemed jacques pepin really got one of his biggest charges in 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 cooking at Howard Johnson's as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. He that's he, he talks about that often. He left the very high end Le Pavillon, which is one of my 10, mm-hmm. in a quarrel with uh, its dictatorial proprietor Henri Soule and went to work for Howard Johnson's and it's important to realize he didn't just sort of spend a transitional period there. He worked there for 10 years. And only left when Howard Johnson, the elder, retired and his son took over, his son interested in cost-cutting and less interested in quality than his father had been. Well, we're going to continue talking about some of these, as they've been called, transformative prototypes, these, these restaurants that really indeed changed America with Paul Friedman when we come back after a quick break. And music in this break is brought to you by The Hollows. The song is called Basilica. We'll be right back. New York chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table. And serving produce that comes from local, environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth. So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified Seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State, certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. 
You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. Hi, we're back. I'm talking with Paul Friedman, the author of 10 Restaurants That Changed America. And, Paul, we had um, talked about how Howard Johnson's was a, um, the precursor to the, the chain, the, the McDonald's, the Burger King's, the you name it. The, That's right. You know, all kinds of chains. And, and that was, it had held a very important place. We move on to Mama Leone's, which we talked about briefly at the beginning of the show, and we didn't spend too much time on that. But it, you said it, um, it, was, it wasn't about the quality so much. It, had, it was a little, well, it became tacky over the years. But in, when it opened at the turn of the century, I mean, that was these bohemian style, as they were called, right? Bohem- places where you could go for a big bowl of spaghetti. I mean, art- artists and, and writers and people would go, they'd say, oh, I could get a whole meal for you know, 15 cents or something. And, and an interesting meal and a flavorful meal, more so than a kind of, say, corned beef and cabbage uh, at some kind of hash house. So the appeal of Mama Leone's, which opened in 1906, is part of the story of what have been called ethnic f- restaurants or international restaurants. Although they weren't called ethnic at the time. No, but the foreign, term they dates, were foreign, right? dates from yeah. the 1960s. Yeah. So let's say foreign restaurants or restaurants of uh, that originally might have appealed to immigrants, but very quickly became adopted by people who were not member, not Italians, if it was an Italian restaurant, or not Chinese, it was a Chinese as we, yeah, restaurant. Yeah, we move on to, you know, like a Chinese, right? The next uh, so year. beginning in the 1880s, this movement of often people who are described in the press as bohemians, uh, they're the first experimenters with international varying cuisine, varying in the sense that they might eat Chinese one night and Italian the next. And I would venture to say, after, with all the books that have been written about it, primarily because they were cheap, to, and there was a sense of being an outlier, an um, outsider. Maybe. I think more than that, because there were cheap places to go. But as is the case now, people want out of so-called ethnic restaurants adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want a rather tame adventure. Therefore, say Chinese restaurants are not going to serve organ meat if their customers are not Chinese or there are various kinds of things that are prized in China that uh, Americans don't want to pay the price for sea cucumbers or bird's nests. So the menu is tailored but the diners are adventurers. These bohemians were single people often, or people who were married but without children, or people who were living together without being married, many of them gay. Professional in the sense that they had an income. They're not starving artists, mm-hmm. but they're not particularly interested in social status, so they're not going to Delmonico's. They want restaurants that are a destination that they can talk about with other people, very much the way people now will say, oh, you know, your Arepa's place is not as cool as my Arepa's place, uh, for whatever reason. It's touristy, or uh, they sell T-shirts, or, uh, you know, it's in the German Guide to New York. <laughs> so uh, some of this you see very early on, a kind of competitiveness for adventurous dining. And that defines America. It's not something that's true 
of other countries. To this day, people in Italy are not really all that enthusiastic about international dining. Mm. They're perfectly mm. happy with eating Italian food actually every day. Well, and the spaghetti joints gave them kind of a... An a nice ambiance as well. You had that That's bottle right. of Chianti and a so candle on the table. Mama Leone's had yeah. the bottle of Chianti and the sort of warm-hearted, somewhat fake warm-hearted atmosphere. People expect Italians to be cheerful and dramatic and operatic, and Italian restaurant owners, even if they were rather glum and uh, uh, serious, catered to that image. Mama Leone's went, however, from stage one of Italian restaurants, which is the intimate bohemian place, dark and uh, with a fairly limited menu, to the Italian restaurant as spectacle, as a place where the waiters sing or they joke around with patrons at a minimum, uh, where there are classical statues all over the place, where this first antipasto course consists of 12 plates, and then there are six or seven other courses as well. Uh, it is a stereotypic image of Italians, but then again, Chinese restaurants catered to this with lots of dragons and red and mm -hmm. gold design. And this appealed to Americans. There's a third stage of Italian restaurant that Mama Leone's does not exemplify, and that is Italian as regional, as sophisticated, as expensive, and as uh, somewhat more subtle than the food that Mama Leone's provided. Mm -hmm. But well, and, I did the those, best I could. They, those ethnic, as we you know now refer to them, restaurants, grew to be quite a business and incorporate you know so many different national cuisines. So much so that uh, it's hard to say what is American food. Right. If you ask foreigners, they'll point to two things. Many foreigners still think that there is no such thing as American cuisine apart from McDonald's and the like. Or they think uh, New York, uh, San Francisco, uh, other big cities are great because they have a huge variety of restaurants, but that there's no such thing as actual American culinary aesthetics. All right. And then we move on to Chinese. I mean, I'm, I, I will get through the list because we started it, so we're going to continue. But um, Chinese, but but different than the chop suey houses that were known in the little you know Chinese quarters. That this this where you entered um, included the restaurant Mandarin. Right, and Mandarin was uh, an experiment in high end decor. In regional cuisine, it offered the food of Shanghai, northern China and Sichuan at a time when almost all restaurants were Cantonese. And it was a great success, although Chinese restaurants generally to this day, unlike Italian, tend to be inexpensive and their customers tend to resist uh, a, a price point that's higher than the kind of inexpensive Level the Mandarin was is very well documented because its owner uh, was Cecilia Chang, who ran the restaurant from its foundation in 1961 until she sold it 30 years later, and it closed in the early part of this century. Cecilia Chang is very much alive and active in the restaurant world on the West Coast. She's now 97. She gave me an awful lot of information about her life, about the restaurant and about the history of Chinese food in America. And so probably of all the 10 restaurants, that was the most fun to work on. Hmm. Um, and she, I mean, she really introduced the population who may have been, may or may not have been familiar with 
the chop suey chow mein houses, she then introduced them to, you know, other dishes uh, in the Chinese repertoire. That's right. I was a undergraduate and a graduate student on the West Coast, and in the uh, late '60s and throughout the 1970s, the first pot stickers I ever had were at the Mandarin. Hmm. The first Peking duck. The first hot and sour soup. It was not the only place to feature these things in the 1970s. And probably you could have found them somewhere. Uh, There are some restaurants in Washington and Boston, for example, that were way ahead of their time. But in terms of both innovation and the diffusion or marketing of dishes, the Mandarin was unique. And then we get into racial diversity, and that's none other than Sylvia's. And, of course, Sylvia's has to be on the list. Sylvia's in Harlem. Right. Sylvia's was established in 1962. And it's not simply there as uh, an African-American restaurant, but really as an American restaurant. Going back to the question of what is American cuisine, right. Right. an awful lot of what American cuisine is, is African-American. And there's a kind of struggle for ownership of Southern cuisine. Is there such a thing Mm -hmm. as Southern white cuisine apart from African-American cuisine when, after all, uh, in white households, much of the cooking, if not all of it, was done by African-American women? So the influence of African-American cuisine is not like that, say, the influence of Italian cuisine on America. It is American Uh, American cuisine. And this has been recognized at least off and on for a long time. So the chapter on Sylvia's is about Harlem, but it's also about the South. Sylvia Woods came from South Carolina and maintained constant relationships with people there. The title she adopted was the queen of soul food, but soul food, Southern food, down-home food, these are expressions that overlap a lot. So the chapter is kind of an exploration of that uh, creative ambiguity. There's a lot of discussion in the culinary world at this time about 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 that about culinary appropriation exactly appropriation this is exactly it's it and as i say she's she just she laid it on the table and they continue to do so to this day uh le pavillon that that i have i kind of had a little problem with that but tell me why le pavillon in uh in New York City was included. Well, tell me your problem. My problem, well, I, as I read the book, I realized it, I, it answered my, my question, but I said, oh, another high-end French restaurant included in this list of, of restaurants in New York City. Okay, so I will let you explain. Right, so it's actually <laughs> the only one, because Delmonico's might claim to be French, But it invented dishes, it had a lot of American dishes, and it was more influenced by London and England than it led on. So a lot of French food in the U.S. was really Victorian French food. Antoine's claim to be French, and in many respects, its aesthetic is uh, very much French, but as you pointed out, it's really a regional kind of adaptation of French cuisine. Chez Panisse began as a French restaurant, but of course turned into something else. So the only really French high-end restaurant in that list is Le Pavillon. So it is an exemplification of 
the most prestigious cuisine, not just in America, but internationally from the 18th to the late 20th century. Le Pavillon was established in 1941. It was related to the French Pavilion at the New York World's Fair. Uh, The restaurant there was staffed by people from France who were uh, faced with the dilemma of whether to go home after the Nazi conquest in the spring of 1940. Those who chose to stay in New York were rallied by Henri Soule to create this high-end restaurant that prospered right from the start, even as America entered the war three months after the foundation of the restaurant. And had staying power unfound in many Staying power and genius. He was an obnoxious genius, like a number of geniuses. He unnecessarily alienated people like Jacques Pepin, but he's merely one of many. Uh, He was somewhat self-defeating. He has a lot to answer for in terms of the persistent and, in my opinion, not fair reputation of French restaurants and French people generally for snobbery or impatience or hierarchy. Uh, But nevertheless, from 1941 until Soule's death in the mid-60s, that was what defined high-end cuisine in the U.S. as authoritatively as Delmonico's had defined it in the 19th century. Right, right. Interesting. Then, of course, there's the famous Four Seasons, which is interesting that we you know. So, it, which just recently closed for it those of you who might just, be living under a rock, but it's just closed just closed. three months ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, not French, very elegant, and yet not French cuisine. And indeed, it was established in 1959 as a very high-end restaurant. No restaurant had cost that much mm. to just decorate everything from the silverware to the ashtrays was special ordered or specially designed. The menu was incredible. It was unbelievably varied, international, creative. They were the first restaurant to have actual foragers going out and looking for mushrooms or um, uh, spring greens. They had an herb garden on the roof. They anticipated an awful lot of current trends. On the other hand, their intent was to be sophisticated, expensive, power-oriented, but not French. Well, power-oriented, you said, you know, um, something I asked earlier on is what what purposes did restaurants serve to us? And, of course, celebratory, um, you know, meals when we were away from home. This was something that um, certainly there had been restaurants to go to for business meetings where, you know, but this became known as the Power Lunch Restaurant. Right, Right. the term was coined in the late 1970s and applied to the Four Seasons, and there were diagrams of who sat at what (laughs) table. This is not in itself new. There had been diagrams uh, of the colony, a socially snobbish and uh, uh, ostentatious restaurant uh, in the magazine Town and Country in the, I think, early 1960s, who sat where. And certainly people knew the Duke and Duchess of Windsor patronized such and such a restaurant that gave it a certain prestige, or Jackie Kennedy was at certain restaurants That later. still exists. And that <laughs> still exists. But that is a kind of social rather than business prestige. Mm-hmm. And 
the fancy restaurants might cement business relationships. You would take a client to lunch, but you wouldn't actually get papers out and start negotiating. This was discouraged by restaurants, uh, but not the Four Seasons. The Four Seasons also managed to provide a scene, a place where you had to show up in order for people to know that you were still in the business, but a rather austere one in terms of food. So it's not a three martini lunch, uh, and the food tended to be rather simple. And the customers didn't spend all day there. Uh, as Lois Wise, an advertising agency notable, uh, remarked, at two o'clock I get up and I go back to my office. I'm mm -hmm. done. So you could transact business, entertain uh, agents could entertain writers, for example. You could woo prospective clients. You could uh, discuss the terms of real estate deals. A and although this seems to be no big deal now, at the time, actually, it was, uh, it was new. And if you were in the grill room at the Four Seasons, you knew that you were, by definition, an important person. All right. Uh that leads us to one that I just that makes me sort of smile and feel relaxed, and that's the last one on your list, Chez Panisse. That's right. And um, in terms of people involved in the food world, that is the one, as I think I said before, that is the most obvious. So people would say, well, Chez Panisse has got to be in there. It's got to be in there because the way we eat now is unthinkable without the influence of Alice Waters and Chez Panisse. It began as an attempt on Alice Waters' part to recreate in as faithful a manner as possible a rustic auberge on the French style where local food would be served, a very limited menu indeed, a no-choice menu in the case mm -hmm. of Chez Panisse, but things from the region, if not from the backyard. This emphasis on ingredients on what is somewhat inaccurately called terroir, that is locality, and certainly the emphasis on seasonality were new, even applied to French restaurants. Le Pavillon at the time would simply have things like caviar or luxury foods, regardless of where they were from. Sometime in the 1980s, uh, under various influences, including those of Provence, of Italy, and of the evolution of her own thought, Alice Waters started serving food that was not so French, more Mediterranean, uh, more American, mm -hmm. more what came to be called New American or Californian. The ingredients become local, uh, not only in the sense of having to having come from around Berkeley, but local in the sense of American. Right. Yeah, I really do think of it as California dining, but it, it became, yes, it became, you're right. She doesn't new, like new the term I California know, dining, but, but, but uh, <laughs> yes, I, I don't think it's inaccurate. That's where it was. And then it became new American. Of course, it became new American. So now restaurants have just taken off in, in this world, in this country, well, I would imagine the world, but particularly in America, there are just, you know, the restaurant trade has just blossomed like never before. And so you're saying that most all restaurants can trace their, oh, no, I don't want to say their origins, but the, the division of what they are, what they, you know, the typology, typology, okay. Sure. 
back sure. to one of these 10 restaurants? I think so. I mean, I think there are trends that we may not identify yet that uh, are underway that mm-hmm. owe nothing to any of these or very little. Uh, the latest chronologically of my restaurants was founded in 1971. And I, I wanted to leave some room for the present to unfold before deciding what are the 10 restaurants that are changing America now. Yeah. Well, you do, in fact, um, sum up all, all your research with um, talking about trends, new trends. And um, I kind of wanted to sum up our talk today as we're running out of time, but I can't go through all the trends. You're just going to have to buy the book and find out what the five trends are that Paul <laughs> talks about. One I will talk about, and I think that is something that is um, that is, is notable, and that's, I, I think we're heading away from that. We were in it and maybe away from it, and that's the, the trend of celebrity chefs. I'm not sure we're headed away from it, but well, it seemed like it we did for a while. But we're back. <laughs> yeah, but we're back again. That's that's something you never knew who the chef was. Often you knew the restaurateur, the proprietor, but you never knew who was behind the stove until recently. That's right. right. So the chef was an artisan, and the person who was the creative genius of a restaurant was the front of the house person who created a certain kind of atmosphere and decor. The chef becomes, in the 70s and certainly in the 80s, has the potential to become an artist and not an artisan, a creator. Somebody who, like Ferran Adriad, El Bouilly, or René Redzepi at Noma, uh, or um, uh, uh, Daniel Hum at um, uh, 11 Madison Park, somebody who can show you stuff that you never knew existed, who can create something that is new but appealing. And that, that is the basis of celebrity chefs, for better or worse. Uh, some are creative geniuses who then uh, monetize their creativity and their genius. Uh, some of them monetize it without sacrificing their creativity and genius. Um, some arguably do better in the financial than in the artistic world, but that's true of artists in general. Then there are some who... Um delve into their artistic creations in a very informal setting, uh, like where we are today at Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick. Well, that's it's, right. It's, it's, it's another marker on, I think, on the, uh, the trend, on the, the trend cycle. And it's a very, inter- it's very interesting to watch what, what comes up next. And, and we can become very fickle diners, always wanting to go to the next newest Restaurant when without going back and being repeat diners to some of our favorites, but there's always something for everyone. There's mm. always something over the horizon, and there you go. <laughs> there is Paul Friedman. Thank you so much for joining me today and talking about your new book, Ten Restaurants That Changed America. It was a pleasure, Linda. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. 
To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.